0: WTF? We're doing a podcast. I'm Nikki.
1: And I'm Michelle. This is 50. Welcome to What the 50. Join us on our continued journey to simplify our lives. We will
0: seek the answers from the experts and offer tips, tools, and techniques to live your life with confidence and joy. Are we ready? Let's go. All right. Hi, Nikki. How are you? I'm great. So you know what's coming up, right? Is one of your yes. favorite times of the year. Sofa season.
1: Sofa season.
0: So today we thought we would have Julianne Lee on. Yes. So Julianne, meet Michelle. Hi, Julianne. Hi, Michelle.
2: Welcome. How are you? Glad to be here. Thank Thanks for
0: having me. Glad to see you. So Julianne is Julianne Lee, but she's also Byron Lee's daughter. Mm-hmm. And from what I know about Julianne, she was instrumental in helping her father bring some of the Elements of Carnival to Jamaica? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Julianne.
2: Um, well, basically, there were elements of, it was Calypso back then, and the recognition of their mass in Trinidad was replicated here in Jamaica at, on UWI campus. Okay. So we must never, ever forget where it really, truly, truly started, and that was with the basin of students up at UE that wanted to also have some Carnival-like um Activity up there. So it was going on for many, many years before. Barony certainly certainly did not bring it to Jamaica. Okay.
0: He
2: popularized it from in the 70s. He used to go down to Trinidad and partake in their carnival, but we never really had a carnival or any carnival activities in Jamaica that was exposed to the mass public or our nation on a whole. So it was never really a part of our culture. It was just basically, <clears throat> excuse me, the students that were here. That were basically partaking in something that they took um, that took place in their countries. And they introduced it to a few of the US students. But that's basically what took prior to 1989.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. So, from what I understand, is that Mm -hmm. your father used to travel to Trinidad and spent extensive time down there and actually took some of the Trinidadian artists on tour with him. And I guess that's how he got familiar with the music.
2: Absolutely. So my dad had a band and the band was basically a big band, cover band that used to play the R&B artists from in the 50s and the 60s. And through his tours and through his crossover into different spaces, because they, as again, I said, toured internationally within the Caribbean basin as a big band band. He then got to know all different types of music. He, he, he got to know the music from the different islands and he fell in love with Trinidad when he went down there in 1951. And oh. so, 61. Okay. and he fell right before their independence, and right before Jamaica's independence, and he fell madly in love with their music, which was um, calypso at the time, okay. and uh, kaiso and stuff like that. And um, being a musician himself, and a producer, and a promoter, and wearing many different hats, he saw the value and um, the he saw the potential of taking that music and then covering it when he went on tour and then through the years he then took the actual writers and the performers themselves from Trinidad with him on tour and a lot of the greats that are out there acknowledge and um, recognize and give credit to him that their first international tour or being heard in a mixed crowd space was, was with them when he was on his North American tours or on his European tours and stuff like that. So that is how he became indoctrinated with with calypso calypso is of course before soka Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like how you have reggae to dance all you have calypso to soka Mm -hmm. so through that and then through his also other productions with like the mighty sparrow and large kitchen and stuff like that um he was able to really gain their trust trinidad was a very closed society you would never hear any other genre being played down there especially during the soca or the calypso season during the carnival lead up seasons and stuff from december straight through to ash wednesday and what baron lee did was he went down to trinidad every year for from the 70s as i said really the 60s but then instrumental in carnival in the 70s and they went to do what they call their um their schooling so they would go down from january and they would play at all the events and then what they would do is they would they would copy all the music that was there they'd rehearse round the clock they'd put their spin on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they would learn the dances, they would learn the, the different phrases, the what was popular at the time, because Calypso was really a lot of satire as well, where they were licking out or they were talking against politicians or things that were happening in society. It was basically a reflection of what was happening in the culture. And um, so then he would go on tour throughout Trinidad and play at various different events and they would hone their skills with a new set of music. So if there were 30 songs, He would narrow it down to about 12 of his favorite songs, which he would then put out on a compilation album that year. Okay. Because he owned studios and because he owned a manufacturing company, recording company, publishing company, distribution company, he already distributed globally for his own publishing company. He distributed for Polydor, Sony Records, Warner Brothers. He used those avenues to slip in his music, which again helped it to spread and grow globally and to become more palatable and more acceptable in certain spaces. So he leveraged all his relationships to get this music that he loved so very much out there and played.
1: Okay. so so tell us a little bit about Baron Lee himself because we have our audience um, is very wide mm-hmm. and they may know about Baron Lee and the Dragonairs, but who was Baron Lee? I mean, I know he was born in Christiana Manchester. Yes. And came to Kingston. So how did he get involved in music? His mother was instrumental in, in introducing the piano. But how did he really fall in love with music? Because clearly he had a love affair
2: with music. He did. He did. Um, Daddy was uh, uh, the first born in a Chinese Hakka family in mm-hmm. Christiana. And they owned a bakery and it was very prestigious for your firstborn son to go to school. So he was sent to boarding school when he was four years old. Unfortunately, the school that he went to was um, an all-girls school. So he was always in trouble. He was very mischievous and his punishment was going to have to go and do piano lessons. And that is actually how he got introduced into music. Yeah. He was an ultra boy in Christiana. They were a very staunch Roman Catholic family. And um, so that is how daddy started to play the music. And then years later, they moved into Kingston and he attended um, St. George's College, Campion and St. George's. But at George's, he was also uh, an athlete and he was one of the strongest football players on the mm-hmm. team. Went to Manning Cup, won Manning Cup. He had a love affair with soccer just as equal or football just as equal to music. So when they used to win their matches, and they did that quite often, and if you look back in all the articles written up, it'll talk about Byron Lee playing football for George's College and his nickname was Sowie, and he kind of hopped the ball. Forgive me, I don't know what position he plays. My daughter can tell you more about that. I'm not really into sports. But after they won their matches, they would go back to the locker room and they would hit tin and pan and they would sing and they would play. And that oh, is then. And that is when he then decided, hey, what, I'm going to, I really love this. And he was a dresser and he was handsome. And, you know, in those days, you had the Elvis Presley and this and that. And like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to play music. So when they got back to the locker room and they'd hit own, he picked out a couple of musicians from there, Carl Brady, being an older gentleman uh older classmate to his mm-hmm. on ronnie nazarala was one and they went out and they formed the dragon and if you know that the mascot for saint george's college is a dragon okay so that's how he got the dragon Interesting, mm-hmm.
0: Bit. Mm-hmm. Interesting bit. Mm-hmm. very much so and
2: then he started to be asked to play at friends sweet 16s and weddings and stuff like that now at this time some of the musicians that he brought into the band were not um, scholars or not students of the school so he would go down into the inner city areas and drive around or um, go down and listen to them playing their music which was at the time and uh, mentor and stuff like that and he would see a musician that he liked and he would say come and play with my band Some of them are not fully literate, but they were decent people. They came from good families. Um, They just did not have the opportunities that he had for access or education and stuff like that. And that is some of those members were brought into the band and um, still great dear family members to this day, considered part of our extended family. Okay, so now when he started to go and play at these house parties, one of the things that he encountered coming from an affluent, educated family is that musicians were not treated fairly. Or correctly or seen as a profession so they used to have to sit out the back of the house they had to sit under a tree they were not allowed to use the restroom facilities they were not given any hydration or any meals and it was during this course of time when he was becoming more and more popular and therefore having more and more um, respect i guess that he and a, a colleague musician sonny bradshaw yeah. decided to did, decided to form the Musicians Federation Association which came up with a like a unionized rights mm-hmm. that bands performed for two 45-minute sets mm-hmm. that they got a bathroom break that they got a meal that they were able to be seated that they were able to have restroom facilities and stuff like that Sonny oh. um, Ratchar led that he was the he was the main leader but dad was very much supportive and, and equally as instrumental in helping Sonny to formalize this union so while this is happening he's gaining momentum he's becoming popular he's making his music he's working along with artists so in the beginning um and he was by the way um he was this was frowned upon by his dad he was supposed to go to medical school this was not something that was respected in those days as as a profession this was something that was a hobby and it was like um not really looked upon favorably by good families um, so he fought he was always fighting for the underdog and um, he fell in love with the music and he started to go on tour and in the late 60s middle 60s Ediciaga was brilliant in recognizing that for jamaica to gain our independence we needed to have three very strong identities one of them was music um, the other was with beauty, with our beauty queens and things like that. And the other one was was culturally our food. You know, uh, he obviously we knew tourism was important, but he, in order for us to, to, um, to be seen as different and to have our own identity, we needed to create this. So he sent out daddy and um, Carlos Malcolm, and he said to the two of them, go out and bring me back a sound that you think would be great for Jamaica. So Eddie at the time was the manager of West Indies Records, which was owned by a, a company out of Barbados. And um, Daddy came back with with what he took from the inner city areas in Kingston, which was ska. Mm. And he him, he gave him now ska was very popular. Daddy didn't make ska, he didn't write ska, he didn't um, create or or whatever. But he was extremely instrumental in popularizing it globally. And um Carlos Malcolm brought back Mento and Eddie Saga decided to go with the ska. Now I don't know if also Daddy's presentation of the band being in uniforms, very disciplined, you know, very structured looking like the OJs or or you know the um, blue uh, the R and B artists in America that had this dance routine, you right, know, Motown right. type of artist type thing. I don't know if that was also something that um, was the winning factor with Eddie, but that worked. So they went to New York in 1963 to the World's Trade Fair Center to play their music with other countries that were playing their music. And when the ska came out and they played their repertoire of music, which Jimmy Cliff was a lead singer in the band, okay. as did some other artists. He wasn't employed to the band, but he was one of the frontline singers that dad took up there and backed to perform. It was a resounding success. It overwhelmed everybody. Um, it was like it was a huge phenomenon, and that was a great boosting part of Jamaica being positioned globally. I have pictures with Donald Sangster going up there with Eddie Siaga and the mayor of New York at the time, and it was, it was a huge, huge, huge success. Daddy was always very aware of the fact that he was, he was blessed to be in the right place mm-hmm. at the right time when a lot of things were taking place. He wasn't the greatest bass player he wasn't the most amazing songwriter. He wasn't like this great prophet that came, like Bob Marley or anything like that. It's just that because he wore multiple hats—businessman, producer, promoter, studio owner, um, record store retail outlet owner, promoter—all of these things, it was able. He was able to use all of those skills to gain more power and appeal to a global market. Um, you know you had great people out there who wrote fabulous music and had great talent but because they did not have a business background or they didn't have that discipline and structure um, they missed that uh, window you know because they didn't have a good distributor or somebody that took advantage of them they missed that window or that opportunity so again he was very blessed to have all of the stars lining up in his favor to be in the right place at the right time. So in New York in 1963, a man came up to him after his performance and touched him and said to him, I like you. You're very good and you're going to be famous one day. And daddy looked at him and said, mm-hmm, thank you so much. Bye-bye. You know, you know. he just thought, eh, whatever. That man turned out to be Nessui Ertigon, who was the owner of Columbia Records. Wow. He recorded dad and dad was one of the first, I think he was the very first jamaican musician to be distributed on a u.s label columbia records
0: okay a
2: couple of months later he got a phone call and neswe Ortigon said we're ready for you now to distribute for columbia records and that I said what are you talking about you know he says i'm the man that met you and this is what we're sending to you and through that connection we set up first-rate studios in Jamaica that we would never have been able to afford we would never know what the technology is because Colombia at the time was looking for an off-site that could accommodate their artists that they could come down and not be so scrutinized to record and at the time they were getting a lot of talent out of England and they were getting a hard pushback in America from allowing them permits to come in to record
0: really uh, Absolutely,
2: absolutely. Um, and they used to get into trouble with the use of recreational, um, items. Okay. So you you could basically have access to marijuana down here, and you could be a little more relaxed. You could drink. You know, it wasn't as um more laid back, very much laid back. And also, the artists that came out here to record were in wonderment that they could walk on the street or they could walk down the road or they could sit in a cafe and not be harassed. Unbeknownst to them, we Jamaicans didn't really know who they were. This is before social media. Mm-hmm. And they were on, you know, we were we were not phased. Jamaicans in a whole are not phased anyway by celebrities. So people like the Rolling Stones came down and spent, instead of recording an album in a week, they spent three months backing and forthing. And um, then they continued to visit there and after you had Paul Simon, you had David Bowie, you know, people who are instrumental. And when they came to Jamaica to record their music, they would then get little tidbits and they would rub elbows with the local studio musicians or the local sound. And that is why Jamaica had such an impact in the Rolling Stones and Paul Simon's music, because they then went on into the future and their sound, their ears were accustomed to our sound and they incorporated it into some of their early albums. Simon, very, very much so, and Eric Clapton as well.
1: Wow! Um, so, so, so you had mentioned timing just now um, that Baron Lee was always usually in the right place at the right time. Correct. Now, tell us a little bit about how he brought Soka carnival, Jamaica carnival, to us in 1990. Was it 1989?
0: I think you were was it 89, or 90? you were there, and it started actually in 1990, right?
2: First, the first production and the first road parade that hit our public streets of Jamaica was in nineteen ninety, which oh, meant really? it started to take the planning took place from nineteen eighty-nine. Oh, right. Our first event was the first of January 1990 That's So now with all of that was happening and he's a businessman and he's touring all over the world and he's taking now Calypso to Canada playing very instrumental part in the development of Caravana. Very instrumental in Miami Carnival was one of the founding people that gave the back end support to it. So when he used to go to Trinidad, I know I'm all over the place, and I'm so sorry. When he used to go to Trinidad Carnival to study their music, to hear their sound, to learn about their culture, which was what really impressed him the most was was the horn section in the Trinidadian music, the calypso music. He loved the brass. Mm-hmm. And he married that with the bottom end from Jamaica, which was, which was huge. That was a major catalyst now in taking that music from that small island and making it be acceptable globally because Byron Lee slowed down the tempo, therefore expanding the audience who was now falling in love with reggae. So he's added another element to it. He put out a compilation album, which was what they thought were the top 10, 11, 12 songs, the band liked. And then they put their spin on it. And those were the hottest sellers. A few, you know, like maybe 10 or 15 years later, less than Paul followed suit as a DJ and put compilations together. And DJ Private Ryan will tell you right now that Daddy paved the way, Byron Lee paved the way, enabling him to have a career. A lot of these DJs will tell you that those compilation albums came from him and the ability to be pulling from a cross-section of, of music, um, mm-hmm talent, I should say, to sell something out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Before uh, you continue on, what would some of the songs that be, that would come out of that time be? Because I'm sure I'm, right. I'm anxious well, to go and Google and see.
2: Well, first of all, now so Trinidad is there and he has already put a Jamaican spin on it to sell his music to the closed Upper St. Andrew um, market that was listening to Calypso in the 70s and the 80s. You have to understand that Trinidad and Jamaica had a crossover of a workforce. Okay. So AEW Air Airlines was very important with a lot of the Jamaicans going down there
1: okay.
0: and
2: learning about the culture. So in the 70s and the 80s, there were private parties that were being held that played Calypso a lot. Okay. But no Jamaican on the mass market, you never heard it on the radio stations at all. And we only had two or three radio stations at that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you heard Sparrow singing his music or when you heard Charlie's Roots or when you heard David Roddo or all of these bands that are now famous and became popular on a large scale in Jamaica in the 90s, they were only being listened to by a very small, hand select people. And that used to really irk daddy. It really irked him a lot because when he was going to Notting Hill Carnival, And he was going to Caravana and Miami Carnival and Brooklyn Carnival, which was really called the Brooklyn Day Parade. Um, When he was going to all these countries and partaking, it carnival originated. If you look at the history of the slaves and then of the working class people that would put on and mimic their bosses or their owners. And they would go out and that was the only time that they were allowed to make fun of them or they were allowed to express what they needed to express. Mm-hmm. So it's really a reflection of the mass market and the um, the people of the country on a whole. And every country he went to, you would see a reflection. So in Trinidad, you see the costumes that were being built by the local inner city community areas and people like that. And it did so in every other country that he went to. It was the indigenous or it was the... Um, the migrants that were in the North American territories, and when he came back to Jamaica, there was no carnival. There was no. There was nothing that reflected uh, um expression, mm. or or music. So he got really angry in 1988. He went to an event, um, which was an uptown event in Upper Saint Andrew on Carmel Drive, and when he went in there. Um, the band members were told that it was raining and they had to park outside the gate of the school and walk their instruments in while the event owners and their wives were able to go park near the stage. And that was it when he he hit, that was it for him. Coming from where he'd come from in the 50s and fighting for musicians' rights and to be respected. And he's a big, big businessman and his musicians are, are very respected people. And he just said, Thank, thank you. And he turned around and he went home while it was raining. And he said, When you're ready for us to perform, you call us back. That was the that was the final disrespect. And they felt because it was an elitist music, it should not be allowed to be shared by anybody else. It was only their little closed group of people. And he said, You know what? Time now. And that was the birth. I'll never forget sitting there on the patio with him while he just he was a very quiet man. And he just held, you know, his forehead and he just kept mulling it over. And then he just looked at my mum and he goes, Okay, so get ready because next year we're going to bring a parade to the streets, to the mass market that they can partake in. And the man at the side of the road, this is not an exclusive music. This is not unattainable. Music belongs to everybody, it crosses all barriers. And he did it in the 60s when he brought ska from downtown uh, um, to midtown. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Clock Tower was really the turning point where you'd say between downtown and uptown. Mm He also took it globally, and it was uh, music that was being played and and danced to and sought after by the upper, upper, upper echelon, which was great. And then he felt that the musicians were getting their due respect and the writers and the choreographers and everything. He actually wrote the song Jamaica Ska, you know, Ska, 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 Jamaica Ska. He was one of the three writers of that song, and that song was then put on Bob Hope's show, Bob Hope and Annette Funicello was also in the Beach Blanket um, movie that Annette Funicello and Frankie Valli did, and they sang it. They themselves sang the song. Um, Daddy was in the Doctor No movie with James Bond, the very first James Bond movie where the band performed, and he wrote two scores for that album as well. So here he's saying music is supposed to be accessible by all It should never be away from. So in 1988, that happened in 1989. He went and he started to plan Jamaica Carnival. And he said, this is what we're going to do. I have a series of events that I've been doing for the past 15, 20 years. I had my New Year's Day um, party. And then when we went, that was a send-off for the band. And then when they went to Trinidad and they came back, it was a Welcome Home Fet concert where he brought back the music. He played it. And there was a, it wasn't all just Calypso. It was a repertoire of music that he played, but it was bringing back the new songs that they had altered or changed so the Jamaicans could really love it a little more his Jamaican following an audience. And of course, it was open to the public and you did have some cross-section people that came in, but it wasn't really into the nooks and cranny of Jamaica. And then when he went to Canada, he'd come back from Canada and he'd have a welcome home tour. And then he went up. So what he did was in 1989, he pro- sent a proposal to... Business people that he had done business with, so Daddy was instrumental in Cool Cat launching of the DNG Outdoor Broadcast thing. He went to his business associates at Ryan Nephew at Air Jamaica, and he leveraged his business relationships and said, "Come on board, this is my vision." And it took a lot of um, convincing for them to shift because he had some marketing experience, being the promoter for their brands whenever they did in a city or community or they did events and stuff like that and he leveraged those relationships said come on board and I promise you you will not be disappointed right. now Michelle I don't know if you know but the coverage that we got in 1989 and the fight that we got from two communities gave us more media coverage and any political situation in Jamaica prior to that. the right. Christian community, christianity and the church and the reggae fraternity fought us every step of the way and i was present for that okay. every single step of the way they fought it because obviously the reggae community was and the fraternity was very upset because they did not want for their culture to be diluted and they wanted to make sure that everybody understood that reggae was what was important and the christian obviously for the the very you know, obvious reasons for that but But i think i
1: think i think baron lee did a good job in reminding the the reggae fraternity that calypso he's not trying to take over or to dilute the reggae i mean the calypso will be played for two months three months of the year um and then it's reggae after that and then what he also did with how he sort of changed up the the music a little bit he added the he combined both genres and came up with his own sound. And what I also love not only was he trying to unite um, Jamaicans from 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 all areas, but he also wanted to unite the Caribbean. Yes,
0: which is important. Which is very
1: important. Um, he Important. He saw it as Jamaican music, or he's a Jamaican band. He saw it as a Caribbean band. Caribbean band. So that was that was that was um, mind blowing for me. And I'll tell you this: that I actually grew up on Barron's music. My parents had parties at home and it was always Calypso. All so right. I grew up hearing him. I remember visiting, um, going down to the hotel downtown many, many, many years ago. Um, yeah. and watching him and his big band, everybody all dressed up. And mm-hmm. what was also interesting was that they they didn't sit down and play their instruments. They no. stood up and played no. their instruments. And I, I remember hearing an interviewer that was actually done on purpose he didn't want the band he wanted the band to be different look different and you know sound different um but i just think baron lee was just such is such a legend thanks for tuning in to this episode of what the 50 Please show your love and encouragement by sharing, subscribing and leaving a review wherever you're
0: listening. And don't forget to like and follow us on Instagram. And please join our active Facebook group at what.the50.